Why Do We Sound So Good? Because we're at Dead Aunt Thelma's studio and Mike Moore is engineering for us. Thanks, Dead Aunt Thelma's. Thanks, Mike. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Adventures in Artslandia. Today, I am talking to one of our own beloved writers, Cheryl Strayed. Her book, Tiny Beautiful Things, Advice on Love and Life from Dear Sugar, has been adapted into a play that's going to be at Portland Center Stage February 23rd through March 31st. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, just hanging out and talking prior to starting recording is there's so many wonderful things to talk about. I know, and I'm so, so excited that Tiny Beautiful Things is coming to Portland, Portland Center Stage. Yeah. It really means a lot to me. I can imagine it does. Uh, you're just beloved here, and everyone is so oh, excited about every single thing you do. It, it, You know, any posts, all the things you write. <laughs> thank you. Thank yeah, you. I was thumbing through my uh, Dear Sugar book this morning, matter of fact, and something jumped out at me, and it was the word becoming. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to resonate for me about talking to you today because this book has now become a play, uh, plus your evolution as an artist. so much there. Right. Um, How did the play become? Wow. Well, I guess it begins way back when I became Sugar. Mm. You know, I think that, you know, obviously that the the play is connected to the book is connected to this, this work I began doing really kind of by accident. I always say Tiny Beautiful Things is the book I wrote by accident. Mm. When I began writing the Dear Sugar column, I had just finished the first draft of my memoir, Wild. And I was had sent it off to my editor and I was waiting to hear her feedback. When you sell a book, you you always get that feedback from the editor. You do a revision. So I knew I would be spending the next year revising Wild. Mm-hmm. And I got this email from my friend, Steve Almond. He said, I'm writing this column called Dear Sugar for the Rumpus, this website called The Rumpus, and nobody reads it. And it doesn't pay anything and I'm not interested in doing it. And, and, you know, and honestly, the column was going to end then. So he, but he just had this idea, maybe Cheryl Strayed would like to do it. He thought to himself. So he emailed me and we hardly knew each other then. We were just acquaintances. And he said, do you want to take it over? And it was one of those things I look back now and I really think, wow, it's so important um, to listen, to trust your gut. That's advice I give a lot as sugar. And that's exactly what I did when I said yes to that proposition. Mm -hmm. Because in a lot of really logical ways, it, it, it should, my answer should have been no. Mm. It really did pay nothing. I don't mean that in any sort of hyperbolic way. I mean zero. <laughs> For a long time, people, I realized, would think I meant, oh, I just paid a little. But no, I mean nothing. <laughs> and, um, and it wasn't a column that anyone was reading. There were all these reasons, uh, you know, that I that I should just pass on that. I was uh, had two little kids. I was needing to put my attention to the revision of Wild, and I needed to make money. Mm-hmm. My husband and I were broke. My husband's a documentary filmmaker. We make our living as artists here in mm-hmm. Portland, mm-hmm. and so you know there are all these good reasons to say no. But what happened is, I trusted my instincts. I felt this spark of life when I considered what it would be like to attempt to give people advice, to counsel them about their secrets and their sorrows and their struggles. I had never done that before. I had never gone through therapy myself or taken a class in psychology. But I felt that as a writer, that was my work, that I was always contemplating what does it mean to be human. And that's essentially 
the work I did as an advice columnist as Sugar. Hmm. So then the play became because... (laughs) So the column became (laughs) and the book became, Mm -hmm. you know, there again, you know, so I was writing this column, Mm -hmm. doing the revision of Wild. And it, it grew this cult following. Uh, every week on the Rumpus, uh, it, the Deer Sugar would come out on Thursdays at noon. Mm-hmm. And the website would would basically collapse. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right... What do, what do websites do? They would go offline mm-hmm. because so many people... It would crash. That's no. the word. <laughs> so many people would click on that column. Mm-hmm. And it was this column... You know, I was writing anonymously. So I couldn't say... As Cheryl, like, hey, everyone, read the column. It was really something that people passed um, online to each other, tweeted about, posted about, you have to read this. And so it grew this following. Mm. And as Wild was coming down the tracks, about to be published, I realized I needed to unburden myself of the anonymity of sugar. I always knew that I would. Mm-hmm. I never wrote the column thinking that it was going to stay a secret forever that I was sugar. Uh, but, you know, so before Wild came out, about a month before Wild came out, I revealed my identity as mm-hmm. sugar. And shortly after that, uh, the book Tiny Beautiful Things was published. And Tiny Beautiful Things, it came out just four months after Wild. I remember so that. that was a big crazy summer for me. It was oh. the summer of 2012. Wild was published in March of 2012 mm-hmm. and, and Tiny Beautiful Things in July. And when Tiny Beautiful Things was published, Wild was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Wow. And so I had this extremely explosive, uh, you know, launch, essentially rocket ride mm-hmm. in my career. Mm-hmm. Tiny Beautiful Things um, was number five on the list when it came out. It was suddenly everything in my professional life changed. And so fascinating too, because both pieces speak so deeply to you personally. Yeah. Not only does your career explode, but your personal life is just, it's everywhere. Suddenly millions of people became acquainted with me in a really intimate way. Well, and what's so beautiful about it in my view and for being on the other side and enjoying Wild so much and same with Tiny Beautiful Things. Thank you. Yes, is that you gave to me as a reader something like food, emotional food. Mm -hmm. And I think it really speaks to that explosion at that time of the need for so many people, which continues. Absolutely. To have authentic connection. And certainly every time the website crashed, it's an indication, you know, people want to connect on a deep level. Yeah, that, that was such a revelation to me. People were hungry for sincerity, mm-hmm. for emotional honesty, for emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. And th- that, you know, as I developed as a writer over the years, that was uh, in my 20s and early 30s, I think that that was something I really struggled with because I was afraid uh, that that I, you know, that I was too sincere and too earnest. Mm-hmm. I was too preoccupied with emotional lives. The The work that I was seeing get congratulated a lot online was very snarky, was funny, was kind of this, you know, sort of postmodern irony and these sort of, um, you know, hijinks on the page. Mm -hmm. And I love a lot of that work too, but I knew that that's just not who who I was. What I had to offer was sincerity. Mm. And I thought it was going to be mocked and rejected when I first started writing the Dear Sugar column. That was the thing 
I was the most afraid of. Mm. I even said, I, when I look back to those first emails between me and um, Steve Almond and the, the, and the editors of The Rumpus, um, uh, Isaac Fitzgerald and, and Stephen Elliott, I was saying to them, well, you know, are you sure you guys want me to write this column? Because <laughs> I'm not funny. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I tend to make people cry more than I make <laughs> them laugh. I'm not in real life, just on the page right. as a writer. Uh, I'm not snarky. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm not that kind of writer. Yes. And so what happened was really fascinating. Is is so I just wrote what I the way I write. I, I I answered these letters the way I saw fit, and that is the great liberation of of being paid nothing for your work. You can do whatever you want to do, and that's what I did as Dear Sugar. I gave that advice column the full force of my humanity and the full force of everything I knew as a writer, mm. everything I'd learned. And people responded because they believed me. They saw in the stories I told themselves. They saw in the letters that people wrote to me their own pain, their own confusion. And, you know, as soon as I saw that people were responding positively to that, Mm -hmm. it made me stronger. Mm -hmm. I trusted it. There was this kind of give and take every week between me and the audience uh, they didn't know who I was, but I was telling them every week really deeply who I was. Yes. They didn't know my name, but I was telling really some of the most bold, intimate, personal stories I'd ever told as a writer. Yes. It's interesting, too, because when I was going back and thinking about it, um, I really appreciate the way in which you answer questions that isn't pointed. It doesn't feel as though it's aimed to a place that you're going, which is something I think about a lot lately, having children of my own, trying to help them see how the future's round and not a ladder up, you know, in the non-linear way you address the questions, which I think is such a great way for us to engage. Yeah, I do too. I mean, you know this as an artist yourself, the power of story is real. Mm -hmm. We, we, we use that phrase a lot, but I think that we forget to really trust it. Mm-hmm. And when I was really, you know, I took the job very seriously of Sugar. I still do. In my, you know, I, it became a podcast and, and I'll, I'll continue to be Dear Sugar in different iterations mm-hmm. throughout my life. But I really thought, how do I actually help people? Mm-hmm. And what I realized is, well, what's, what's helped me? Mm-hmm. And I knew immediately the answer to that. It's art. It's the stories that I found in the books I loved, in the movies I loved, in the songs I loved, in the plays I saw, you know, mm-hmm. all, all of that. Those are stories of other people's struggles and sorrows and secrets that were given back to me. Mm-hmm. And they allowed me to see myself. They illuminated a path. And I think that that's what I was trying to tap into mm-hmm. by using, you know, th- those Dear Sugar columns. Very often what I'll do is begin to tell a story about my own life that seems unrelated mm-hmm. to the letter writer's problem. You're so tricky that way. I know. It seems unrelated. And it seems, and you're thinking like, what is she Dang even it. doing? Like, why <laughs> is she talking about this when they asked about that? And, you know, that that is a way of turning advice on its head, I think, because it's also what we hate about advice is we hate being told what to do. <laughs> yes. We hate being bossed around. Right. And so I never was going to come from that position where I would just say, I'm superior. I know the answer you do this and then this and then this. Mm. Um, you know, I think that that can be uh, really 
you know, it, it, that can be helpful on occasion. Mm-hmm. I, I do step forward and say sometimes I know what the answer is. Well, you do have children for heaven's sake. That's right. <laughs> but most of the time, I think we are, we receive that message more, you know, and I, you said that way, right, that word round. And I was going to say in a more full-bodied way mm-hmm. when it comes to us. Yes. By way of a story. So here's a funny way to connect the play and the book. Um, we were just talking about the set. And in the original, yeah. you had the uh, opportunity to walk the set and see what was being used. And you noted that there were certain books on the bookshelf. So we share a favorite bookstore, Broadway Books. Yes. Oh, um, awesome. I have my pink punch card in my wallet. <laughs> <laughs> and I wondered, uh, what are the books that you ended up with on your bookshelf in the original production of the play? Oh, yeah. That's a great question. I it, that, remember that a original of production of the play was so, such... Uh, a really powerful experience. Mm. And and one of the most powerful things was, just like you said, walking around the set. And I, I did say, okay, it's really important that the books on the shelves are books that I care about. It, I don't remember all of them. I know there was some Raymond Carver. My, my son Carver is named after Raymond Carver. Mm. I know there was some Alice Monroe, who's my favorite mm. writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Toni Morrison's Beloved was, was on that shelf. There, there are all these um, writers mm-hmm. who meant so much to me who... I felt in some ways, I, I still feel it, mm-hmm. gathered around me. You mm-hmm. know, they're on the shelves in, in my home and they gather around me. I felt that all through my career. It's funny. When yeah. I go to a movie, I often, I'll say, oh, what's on the book stand? I'm curious what yeah. the characters are reading. Me too. I'm always looking past the characters. Yeah. But, you know, the, another really cool piece of that set uh, that was in, made at the Public Theater in New York mm-hmm. was the refrigerator had magnets on it. Um, the way many of our refrigerators do, and little you know notes and scraps of paper and kid art and things, but it had those those colorful alphabet letters mm-hmm. on the refrigerator, mm. and uh, I I think it was one of the rehearsals, like the dress rehearsal or something. I was sitting in the audience mm-hmm. watching, and then afterwards I was walking around the set, and I took the liberty of forming some words um, on the refrigerator. Oh. I, I put. Uh, the word Bobby, which is my mother's name oh. and my daughter's name, just very discreetly on the side of the refrigerator. Oh. And Rachel, the set, the the woman who designed the set, was like, "Yes, that's perfect. That's oh. beautiful." And it became it, it was there uh, really all through the production. It oh, was like this lovely. little special secret message. It reminds um, me of the Nina signature on those famous uh, Hirschfeld yes, caricatures, exactly. like a little hidden that's exactly what it beauty was. mark. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. wonderful. Well, here's a big question, but I'm curious. What makes you feel whole in your life? Oh, that is such a big question. It's a whopper, right? It is. It's a big one. Uh, as you know, as artists, I know that there's a lot to balance and and feel out. And it, and yeah. It, and I think too. I mean, I'll be curious if you agree with this that that it's not wholeness isn't a, a state of being that you arrive at and then you're good to go for the rest of your life. <sighs> that is just, dang it. <laughs> I, I, you know what I think of? I, I rem- in in my twenties, and uh, when I would rent various apartments, and, and they didn't have a washing machine, like I would have to go to the laundromat. <laughs> I have this image of myself, you know, carrying some, you know, like load of laundry, and you're and you get it all in your hands, and you're good to go for a few steps, and then you drop a sock, and then you manage to pick that sock up, and you have another couple steps, and then you drop a shirt, and that's how I feel about wholeness in my life, mm. um, you do get better about, you be, get better at carrying the load. Mm-hmm. But 
I, in my life, I'm always having to reassess, mm-hmm. you know, where have I been? Where am I going? What's working? What isn't? What, what, did, what did I need before that I don't need now? In, in every way. I mean, it's a really interesting uh, evolution, I think. And to stay awake to who you are in every era of your life. I just turned 50 in September, mm-hmm. and I feel myself absolutely, you know, really looking at my life and assessing. I've been through this tremendously fortunate success in my career over the past decade. I have, you know, stayed the same in some ways and changed in others. Um, my kids are now teenagers. I'm now in middle age. I mean, you know, all of these things are shifting around, and I have to make choices based on that. So, you know, that that wholeness that I maybe felt when I was 42 gets a little fractured, and then I have to become whole again. Mm. I'm working on that now. You know, for me, this time of my life, that's that, that journey towards a, a wholer sense of wholeness mm. was about really seriously learning how to honor the most important things in my life and let go of some of the things that were standing in the way of me having that, even if I loved those things. Like my podcast, my Dear Sugars podcast, Mm -hmm. really, you know, it was such fun working with Steve Almond. It was really rewarding to have so many people listening to us and loving the podcast and responding to the, the advice we gave. But I also, it was holding me back from from writing my next book. Mm-hmm. I found myself becoming, um, you know, a lot of my time being taken up with something that I, that it mattered to me, but mm-hmm. wasn't essential to my being, that wasn't essential to the person, to, to the person I am mm. um, and to my sense of wholeness. So I gave that up. Like that's one example. But, you know, four years ago when I began the podcast, I was excited to do it. I was happy to do it. It right. was it was the thing I needed to do then. Mm-hmm. And so I think so much of of really being whole humans is about engaging with those questions and being willing to to you know shift and shift every time something shifts in your life. You know, yeah. there's new new truths emerge. Yeah. Do you think loss connects us yes. in humanity? Absolutely. Don't you? Yes. And I'm, I'm so fascinated by how we want never to speak about it. Yeah, I know it's 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 dazzlingly fascinating to me too mm-hmm. because over and over and over again this comes up about loss, about shame, about pain, about the the Messy. the bad things that have happened to us, the bad things we've done, yes. and I get to have a front row seat. Um, to this to this experience a lot when I teach writing, mm-hmm. because of course the first fear of anyone who ever enters a writing workshop, especially with me, is they'll <laughs> say, "How do I? You know, I'm afraid I'll be judged. I'm afraid I'll be condemned. If I write the truth of who I am and what I did and what's happened to me, I'm either going to be judged for my actions or." Somebody in my life is going to be hurt by what I say, or I'm not, you know, I'm not allowed to speak this truth. So many of us have been told that the worst thing that you can possibly do is tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And of course, in writing and in all art making, the first thing on that job description, the first line, <laughs> not that we have a job description, but <laughs> if we had to write one, it would be tell the truth. Right. And so, you know, my work as a teacher is always tell the truth, tell the truth, tell the truth. Mm-hmm. My work as a writer 
is to tell the truth. And it is what brings people to me. And so I always reassure my students, trust me, Mm -hmm. you will be loved. If you tell us your sorrow, if you tell us your shame, Mm -hmm. if you tell us your secret, Mm -hmm. a whole tribe of people will gather around you Mm -hmm. and love you. And I've seen that happen over and over and over again mm-hmm. in my in my own work, in my own writing, honestly, about my grief. When I was writing, when I first began writing about my grief in, in my 20s, in my first essays where I wrote about the death of my mother, mm. I thought, I am just, an, I'm a savage. I'm, an, I'm a crazy person. Mm. Nobody has ever grieved like this before. And I was wrong. I, I published this essay, uh, two of my early essays, Heroin and the Love of My Life, both both were in Best American Essays. And in both cases, they're about about my grief over my mom's young death. She died when she was 45. Mm-hmm. And both times, it was like hundreds of thousands of people, I mean, really, thousands of people emailed me and said, I've never heard anyone say what you said about grief, mm. and I feel this way too. So there are two of us. Yes. And I would email them back and say, no, there are 2,000 of us. Right. And now, of course, with Wild and with Tiny Beautiful Things, I'm like, no, there are millions of us. Mm-hmm. I was in India a few year, about five years ago, and I was there to, at the Jaipur Literary Festival to talk about Wild. And I got on stage and I looked out on this vast audience and mm-hmm. it was like a thousand people from India, mm-hmm. you know? And I was afraid. I was like, well, what do I have to say to them mm-hmm. about Wild? How are they going to relate to my hike on the Pacific Crest Trail? Mm-hmm. And what was so fascinating is, you know, I began talking and, and after my event, I had a signing and so many of them lined up and they said to me, the exact same things that people say to me about the book here in Ohio and in uh, in Germany and all around the world. And that's not, I mean, that's about the ways that loss connects us. Yeah. It's so deep and beautiful. Yeah. I love, therefore I grieve. Yeah, absolutely. Those two things are inseparable. Yes. Well, there's so many other things I can ask about. Uh, let's see. <laughs> I know we could talk for hours. <laughs> we could talk for hours. Let's just face it. So the play is coming to Portland Center Stage, and I know it's directed by Rose Reardon. What's it like to watch yourself being portrayed by actresses? I know Dana Green's going to be playing I you. I know. I'm so excited. She's a wonderful actress and a wonderful human being. Well, they both, both Rose and Dana. I'm really honored. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's it like to, to have an actress play you? Well, first of all, it's an experience I've now had twice mm-hmm. with Reese Witherspoon in the movie of Wild and with Nia Vardalis in the play, the mm-hmm. New York production of, of Tiny Beautiful Things. And she adapted it for the stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is honestly the most surreal experience of my life. There, there's no getting used to it. There's no, I mean, it's, it's incredibly strange. It's incredibly moving, hmm. you know? I mean, there are some times that... I, I mean, I just can't wait to see it at Portland Center Stage. I mm-hmm. think I'm probably going to howl like a monkey, probably, like weeping and um, beside myself, mm-hmm. uh, probably the first time I see it. Because it, it is, what moves me about it is, um, I think it's that sense of like you say loss connects us. Loss also isolates us. Mm-hmm. Because almost always we feel alone in our pain. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, the, that's the hottest core of our suffering is we think we're alone. Mm-hmm. And when I see that play at Portland Center Stage, there will be proof that we are, are not. That, that, that those stories I told and those stories that I received from the letter writers in that book uh, came together 
and made a community and made a kind of magic. Mm. And so to see that made every afternoon or every evening or every, you know, every day that it's made on the, on that stage is, you know, really proof of that connection that we really have, Mm. not just right now or not just in that theater, but really connection across every divide throughout all time. It's so interesting. I just read the the library book by Susan. Uh-huh. Does she pronounce her last name Orlean or yeah. Orlean? Orlean. Orlean. Yeah. And I was thinking about library books yeah. and about the beauty of them being passed and passed and passed and passed and who reads the books. Right. And every time, I mean, as an actor, I know when 250 people see a play or 2,000 people see a play, then we are all together in that moment. Yeah. Um, and you have that same experience in books, I mean, right now, probably hundreds of people are opening one of your books right now. I know. It's, it's crazy. It's, I know. I'll never get over it. You see, I'm probably I mean, way off. A it's lot not of hundreds. Ex- it's probably, I don't know. A, a lot of exciting things, like kind of glamorous, exciting things uh-huh. happened to me in the wake of, of the publication of Tiny Beautiful Things and Wild and Brave Enough and, you know, all of that stuff meeting Oprah and going to the Golden Globes and the Oscars and, you know, on and on and on. Like really, really kind of things where I thought, what on earth, what life have I stepped into? (laughs) But I'll tell you this honestly and truly and very sincerely is none of that at all compares to the wonder and the gratitude and the glory I feel when I think about what you just said, that, that sense of like people actually experiencing transformation, experiencing a sense that they're changed mm-hmm. by a story I told or a sentence or paragraph that I wrote. Mm. That to me, that, that, that glorious connection we have that art allows us to have when we tell the truth about our lives, when we're willing to receive the truth mm-hmm. about our lives too. Mm-hmm. I mean, that to me, that connection, I think, I think that is the mission of art to build that bridge that, that connects me to you, to all the people through all time. And like that, that's the most satisfying part of this work. And it's so spiritual and philosophical almost because it's ephemeral. Yeah. Because someone is opening your book right this minute, but you may never know who they are, but you know it's happening. So how much do you have to know? How much <laughs> do you feel? You that's know? right. Well, th- and that's the challenge too, honestly, of the fame thing that's happened with yeah. me because of this is... You know, a lot of times because my work is so personal, I get emails, even phone calls all the time from people saying, I loved your book. I'm going to be visiting Portland. I'd love to meet you for coffee. And I'm like, no, I can't meet everyone for coffee. You know, so to be like, you know, okay, the the connection, the thing, the the connection is the book. Yes. The connection is the play. Yes. And then I still have to somehow have my life like a regular person. that's, That's been... An interesting, like this, this deep connection, um, but then also the need to, you know, have our discreet lives, have our, to, to, to just f- trust in that bond that art can make right, without having coffee with everyone. <laughs> right. Trusting in that, whatever yeah. that moment was, that's enough. Yeah. And, that's, and it's what I have to give. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's huge. Fascinating. Yeah. So curious, what are you working on now? Can you talk about it? And um, what are the other big ideas right now that are kind of hovering in your in your mind, in the world, with your children and living in Portland? And Right. I'm really excited about 2019. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited about this year ahead because I am 50 and it is this year 
in which I am going to finish my next book, mm. which is a memoir mm. called Daughterland. Mm-hmm. And I have a sense, a new sense of blossoming about that. Mm. And it is because I spent last year uh, letting things go, mm. letting the podcast go. I had a column in the New York Times called The Sweet Spot. Let that go. Uh, just l- say no to, to more things than I've ever said no to before. Mm-hmm. And and what what it took was in 2018 saying no to things that would happen in 2019 right. because, you know, you have to plan for those no's. Mm-hmm. So I've cleared out a lot of space in my life. I also, I've been spending the last couple of months clearing out a lot of space in my house. Mm-hmm. Like it's all connected, that sense of, you know, creating an opening for me. Mm-hmm. When I was in my 20s and 30s, my deepest wish for myself as a writer was is that I would have time to write, that I would be free of, you know, having to always scramble for a living to make money being a waitress or a teacher or, you know, uh, this, that, and the other thing. I did a million jobs. I was always scrambling to pay the rent. That's how it is for us. That's right. And I would always think if I just could, you know, have financial security and I could just write. Now, of course, Wild bought me that financial security. Tiny Beautiful Things bought me that financial security. Mm-hmm. But I've now been busier than ever. <laughs> so that great irony has been I've been having to kind of go, how do I return to that old place? <laughs> that place when I was writing Wild at the kitchen table and I didn't have an office and there were kids all around me. And and so I've had to sort of create those conditions again, <laughs> um, really by having a quieter life mm. so that I can, you know, be in the quiet that writing demands. Mm. So that's what I'm doing. I'm working on that next book. Oh, well, I feel so fortunate to have been able to have shared a couple of glasses of water with you today. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's wonderful talking to you. Thank yes. you for having me on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. I hope everybody will get to meet Cheryl through the play at Portland Center Stage, Tiny Beautiful Things, which is going to open on February 23rd through March 31st. You can find out everything you need to know at pcs.org. Um, read the books, make friends, talk about them, be nice to each other, and have a wonderful day. And maybe someday we'll have coffee. Sounds good. Adventures in Artslandia is brought to you this week by DOC. Italian-inspired, raw wine-focused, Northwest-grown, theatrically prepared. Visit our sister restaurants Nona and Yakuza. Thanks for listening to Adventures in Artslandia. Download the Artslandia app on iTunes where you're going to find a comprehensive arts calendar that's the best in the West. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Artslandia.